This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Let's pray. Lord, your name is glorious. And we pray that the name of Jesus would be lifted up this morning. That the work of Christ, his death for sinners like us, his resurrection from the dead, the new life, the eternal life that he gives, that that good news would just be placarded above our, our eyes today. That we, that we would see maybe for the first time, who Jesus is, or, or, or maybe if we've walked with Jesus for a long time, that we'll be taken into a new place, a deeper place in our understanding of his love for us and a deeper place in our love for him. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We've done nothing to earn it. Indeed, we cannot earn it. It, it comes to us as your grace, as a gift, and it's enough. It's more than sufficient for anything that we're facing in life today. And so, Lord, would you be at work in the power of your spirit now as we dig into your word? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Parents, or maybe even grandparents, never underestimate the, the ability that you have to instill confidence in your kids or in your grandkids through your encouragement. If they know that you believe in them, then they'll begin to believe in themselves and what God can do in and through them. I was blessed with parents like that. My, my father had, I think, a spiritual gift of encouragement. And it just seemed like that, you know, whenever I was down or, you know, in need or confused or whatever, he just had a way of speaking words that were just like a shot of the Holy Spirit's encouragement just straight into my veins. And he would do that with other people too. I was at a conference and I was sitting beside uh, Terry Falkenberry, who was a pastor in North Carolina. And Terry interned here at our church in, back in the 70s. And I happened to be sit, sitting beside him that day. And he said, Thurman, one of the turning points of my life happened when I was at First Baptist as an intern on a Wednesday night. Your dad came up to me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he looked me right in the eye. And he said, Terry, I've been watching you. And you've got what it takes. And God has his hand on you. And God is going to use you in a great way. And he said, that moment was a massive turning point. Because I needed to hear words like that from somebody that I looked up to and respected. I think that the Apostle Paul played a role like that in the life of Timothy. This letter that we're studying, 2 Timothy, is, is just all about a spiritual father giving encouragement to a, a son in the faith. 
And Timothy is in Ephesus. It's a very difficult, very challenging situation there. And and the Apostle Paul is writing to him, and he is saying, as we sung together earlier, son, his grace is enough. You be strong in it. Let's talk about being strong in grace. I want you to open your Bibles this morning to to 2 Timothy, and we're going to begin chapter 2 of 2 Timothy this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 7 and talk about what it means to be strong in grace. 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. Oh, what a great text. Paul says to Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So what do we see here in this text about being strong in grace? The first thing that we see in verse 1 is to be strong yourself in Grace. Look at verse 1. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In order to help anybody else be strong in grace, Timothy has to be strong in God's grace himself, just like we do. Before we can help anybody else, we have to pay attention to our own walk with the Lord, to make sure our own walk with Christ is strong. That's why in the first letter that we looked studied in the fall, in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16, what does Paul say to Timothy? Watch your life and doctrine closely. But before anything else, Timothy, watch your life. Guard your heart. Before you can help others be strong in grace, you've got to be strong in God's grace yourself. Now let's look here at the text again in verse 1. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So you know the the rule, and when you're reading your Bible and you see a therefore, you need to look and see what it's there for. What did the author just finish saying? Because when Paul says therefore, he's kind of building on what he just said. So what did he say at the end of chapter 1? And remember that originally there were no chapter divisions in this letter. Okay, that came later. It it was all just one flowing document. So what did Paul say to Timothy and to us at the end of chapter 1? Let's pick it up here at verse 15. He says, you know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, 
because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was at Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. And so Paul here at the end of chapter one is, is holding out bad examples and one incredibly good example to Timothy. First of all, Timothy, this is who you do not want to be. Phygelus and Hermogenes, they deserted me. They deserted the gospel, as we talked about last week. They, you know, they didn't want to suffer. And so they were, Paul was in prison when he was rearrested. They were ashamed of his chains. They didn't want anything to do with him. So they deserted Paul. They deserted the gospel because they were trying to avoid suffering. They wimped out. He says, you do not want to be like those guys. Here's who you want to be like, Onesiphorus. This guy was not ashamed of my chains at the risk of his life. This guy continued to visit me in prison in Rome. You, you know how faithfully he ministered alongside us in Ephesus, which is where Onesiphorus was, was, was from, right? So Paul is saying here at the beginning of chapter 2, Timothy, you, you've, got, you've, seen, you've seen what happens when people desert the gospel, that these guys bugged out, but you've also seen an example of faithfulness in Onesiphorus. Now, you therefore, you therefore, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. William Mounts, who, in my opinion, wrote the greatest commentary on First and Second Timothy, and who is probably the probably the greatest living Greek scholar today, uh, translates this as be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, as Christians, we are not only saved by grace, but we are also strengthened by grace. Now, maybe you've heard this expression. It's a cliche that's made its way into the Christian community. And, you know, we have these cliches. They're not Bible verses, but, you know, somebody said it one time and, you know, it ends up on Pinterest or whatever, you know, and, and uh, it becomes this thing. And people think it's in the Bible. It's not really in the Bible. Um, but there's this expression, you know, um, uh, who you are is God's gift to you. What you make of yourself is your gift to God. I kind of understand what they're trying to say, but I don't particularly care for that cliche because it makes it sound like, okay, well, God saved you by grace and now the rest is up to you. No, no, you're saved by grace and you're strengthened by grace for your daily walk with Christ. The grace of God is like a, a never-ending account that we can just keep drawing from and drawing from daily as we lean upon the Lord, as we learn to pray without ceasing and, 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 and walk with him day by day and trust his word and his promises, applying them to our lives day by, by day, just daily drawing from that never-ending, never-exhausting account of grace 
being strengthened by grace each and every day as we, as we, as we walk with him. And then he says, notice here in verse 1, he says to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is your identity as a believer. You are in Christ, united to Christ. Look at, chapter, look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 2. The Bible says there, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. As believers, we are standing in grace. And we have to always go back to that. Always go back to the gospel. Just preach the gospel to yourself each day and remind yourself that you're, you're standing in grace. That if you're in Christ, the Father has adopted you as his own beloved son or daughter. He is for you not against you, right? He loves you the way that he loves his son because you are in his son. You are in Christ. And so you're, you have a, you're standing, your identity is in grace. Don't forget who you are. You know, I, I, I'm a big spy movie guy, so I love all the Jason Bourne movies and everything. But you know, that, that whole series begins when this CIA operative, after an, uh, an accident on a mission, he wakes up and he, he forgets who he is. He has amnesia. A lot of times as Christians, we get spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are. We forget our identity in Christ. And the Bible says you gotta always go back to that. Always go back, and this is so practical. When you face temptation daily, you gotta remind yourself who you are. Go back to Romans 6. Sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. My mom, who was another great encourager, used to tell me when I was younger, when I would leave the house growing up, she would say, remember who you are. Remember who you are in Christ. So be strong in God's grace yourself. That's the first thing. The second thing that we see in verse 2 is this. Commit the truth to others. So Paul says in verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, there's a micro dimension to verse 2 and a macro dimension. The, the micro dimension is the church at Ephesus. Timothy is in Ephesus trying to get this church on the, the right to write it. You know, it's been had all kinds of false teaching and problems and things. He's trying to help them write the ship. So the micro thing that Paul's talking about here is the situation at Ephesus. Later on in the letter, what we're going to see is that Paul wants Timothy to come to Rome. But he knows that there's no way that Timothy can leave the church in Ephesus and come to Rome unless he has first trained and appointed faithful pastors who will be able to teach the word faithfully to that church in Ephesus. Now, you remember when we were in 1 Timothy in chapter 3, and he was talking about the qualifications of pastors, elders? You remember on that list, basically everything that he talks about would apply to any healthy, growing Christian except for one. 
pastors must be able to teach. That means they should be gifted to preach and teach the word of God, but, but not just a, 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 that, not only gifted, but trained. There ha- that, that gift has to be developed. There's got to be serious training if someone has the responsibility of shepherding the flock of God. They have got to be able to handle the word of God accurately and, and well. And that takes a lot of training. So what Paul is saying here on a micro level is, Timothy, pour yourself into faithful men. Remember, this church was coming apart because they had had unfaithful elders. Pour yourself into faithful men that, they, that when you leave, the church is not going to be bereft of healthy leadership. There will be uh, pastors there that will be able to handle the word of God and nourish people with the truth. Okay, so that's the, that's the micro level. It's Ephesus. The macro level is that Paul is concerned about the progress of Christianity in general. Because Paul has been kind of, he's been God's point man in a way. I mean, he's been planting all these churches around the Greco-Roman world, but Paul knows he's going to die soon. Paul's in a dungeon in Rome as he writes this letter, and he, you can tell, and we'll get into it later on in the letter, he does not think he is long for this world. He's going to die soon. And so Paul is concerned about the progress of Christianity in general, and he knows that after he dies, Everything is riding on whether disciples are making disciples, pouring into others so that the gospel can be passed on. This is a picture of a, of a 4 by 100 uh, relay race, and maybe you've seen this in the Olympics, but you know, you've got these sprinters going around the, the track every quarter mile, and they go around, and, and, and they have to pass that baton to the next guy and if that baton is dropped if it's fumbled and dropped it's the race is over I mean, they'll never be able to catch up but so everything is riding on on whether or not that that baton is successfully transmitted so paul in this situation is, is looking at what's happening in christianity is everything's riding on the gospel being passed on Right, and as disciples making disciples, right, which is the, the vision of our, of our church. So commit the truth to others. The third thing that we see here is share in suffering in verses three through seven. These verses, verses three through seven, very special to me because the, the first Bible study that I ever led when I was 17 years old on a youth trip to um, Florida, we were on Daytona Beach, and so Trudy Cuthrell asked me if I would do the devotion on the beach that morning on verses three through seven. And I have no idea what I said. I can pretty much promise you it wasn't very good. Um, I probably made no connection between the three metaphors that we'll look at and share in suffering. I can promise you I didn't make that connection. Um, However, 
I did read the text, <laughs> and so it wasn't a total loss, because if you just simply read verses 3 through 7, it is so incredibly powerful. Let's, let's dig into it. Okay, so beginning in verse 3, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. What distinguished Onesiphorus and Paul from Phygelus and Hermogenes, these guys who had deserted the gospel, who had fallen away, what distinguished them? It's that they were willing to suffer. They were willing to suffer for Christ. Paul was willing to be put into a dungeon in Rome for the gospel. Before too long, he was going to be beheaded for the gospel. Onesiphorus was willing at the risk of his life to keep visiting Paul in prison. He was not ashamed of his chains. These guys were, were willing to suffer for the gospel. And if we are true followers of Christ, we will also be willing. In Romans 8 and verse 17, Paul says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If we're not willing to share in his sufferings, we're not going to share in his glory. So one of the marks of a genuine follower of Christ is a willingness to share in the sufferings of Christ for the gospel. Now here in verse 3, Paul uses the first of three metaphors to unpack this. And the first metaphor is that of a soldier. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So civilian life, and especially in our country, okay, is about ease and comfort. In fact, we have to be so careful in our culture here in 21st century America that we don't make idols out of ease and comfort. But you know, civilian life, I mean, we kind of, we expect ease and comfort. Soldiers do not expect ease and comfort. They do not sign up for what they do expecting ease and comfort. They expect hardship. They know that they may be seriously injured or lose their lives, but even if that doesn't happen, I mean, just the training and boot camp and all of that. I mean, it's, there's hard, you go into it expecting hardship, expecting some pain, expecting some suffering. Christians in the first century in which this letter was written went into it expecting to suffer. Larry Hurtado, a New Testament scholar, has written an incredible book called Destroyers of the Gods uh, about the, the growth of the early church. And he does a beautiful job in that book just describing, I mean, what it was like to be a Christian in one of these cities like Ephesus or Rome in the first century. And the, the daily suffering that would be entailed in that. They, they went into it expecting to suffer. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today 
like the people in Nigeria, who I saw a video this week of their church being burned to the ground in front of them. I mean, like many Christians around the world today, they go into it expecting to suffer. They know the moment that they are baptized that, that they're, they are, they're going to get hit. They're going to suffer. Maybe be beaten, maybe be burned, maybe be thrown in prison, maybe die for the gospel. And there's such a disconnect in our culture, you know. But as our culture grows more and more secular in America, and if there is increasing hostility toward the gospel in our culture, and there is, we will find out who the real Christians are and who the sham Christians are. And that will make us stronger. But, you know, soldiers go into it expecting to suffer. right? So, so it says, share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 4, he, he unpacks this metaphor of the soldier even more. He says in verse 4, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Now, this takes us to another aspect of the suffering that people in the military give. Because it's not just, you know, physical suffering. There's another aspect to it that most of us don't even think about. And that is that the moment that you sign up for the military, you are making a sacrifice. You're, you're no longer your own. Your life's not your own. You're, you know, your time is not your own. Um, your, you know, the way you dress is not your own. The way you wear your hair is not your own. I mean, on and on and on and on. Where you get sent and live and all of that is out of your hands. You know, you have made a, there, that's, there's a sacrifice in that. But what we need to understand as followers of Christ is that we are not our own either. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. If you were in Christ, you were purchased by the precious blood of Christ shed on the cross on your behalf. You have been redeemed by him. You are no longer your own. You're when he says glorify God with your body, he's talking about everything that you are. Everything, your, your, your brain, your eyes, your, your, your hands, your feet, and where you go and your work life and your sex life and the way that you use your possessions and on and on and on. You're not your own. We're soldiers. We belong to him. And we're not to be entangled, entangled in, the, in the, the, the sins of this world that draw us away from him. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Jesus says in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. 
Jesus says there, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Our temptation as Christians in America is to be so wrapped up in the stuff of this world that we become spiritually unfruitful. And the word is choked. You may have heard the expression of somebody being so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I've hardly met any Christians like that. I've ever met anybody like that. It's another cliche. It doesn't make any sense. Here's what I have met plenty of. People who are so earthly minded that they're no heavenly good. And the stuff of this world has choked out the fruitfulness of God's word. And so there's, there's got to be a focus. A soldier is focused. They're focused on what? Pleasing the commanding officer. That means that as believers, we live our lives ultimately for an audience of one. We're focused on pleasing Christ, and that's our reward. For all three of these metaphors, we're going to see an aspect of suffering and sacrifice, but then we see a reward attached, attached to it. What's the reward for the soldier? Pleasing the commanding officer. What's our reward? It's pleasing Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. Galatians 1 and verse 10, for I am, am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would no longer be a servant of Christ. There's got to be a focus there on just pleasing the Lord. And that's our reward. I love the great movie Chariots of Fire. And, and Eric Liddell was a, an Olympic runner in the, uh, tw in the 20s. That's it's not the picture I want yet. Sorry. <laughs> you can go off of that. Um, but Eric Liddell, that's another runner, uh, and more infamous runner. We'll talk about her in a minute. Um, Eric Liddell was an Olympic runner in the, in the 20s. He was from Scotland. Uh, grew up on the mission field in China. His parents were missionaries. And he was committed to, to go back to China as a missionary. Um, but before he went back, he was committed to compete in the Olympics. And so he's having this, this, this conversation with his sister, and he's trying to explain uh, to her. And he, and he says to his sister, um, he says, God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Living your life for the pleasure of God, just to be pleasing to him. That simplifies life immensely, right? That's the simplicity of the soldier, the focus of the soldier, right? So that's the first metaphor um, here. Now, speaking of uh, running, the second one is the athlete. Let's check out verse 5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Um, now, this is a picture. <laughs> Get to it now. All right. This woman's name is Rosie Ruiz. And you can see the wreath on her head. This was after, this is moments after she was crowned as the winner of the Boston Marathon in 1980, the most prestigious 
uh, marathon in our country. So she crossed the finish line, crowned with the you know with the with the with the wreath, um, you know, and uh, and P and and the press were just like, wow, this is amazing because this woman. This woman is a, is a newcomer to the running scene. Well, she was definitely a newcomer. She had, she had run out of the crowd into the race a half mile from the finish line. Okay? So eight days later, she was stripped of her, of her crown. She did not compete according to the according to the rules. So an, an athlete, there's, a, there's an aspect of suffering and sacrifice. The, the real runners in the marathon ran over 26 miles, not a half mile. There's a lot of pain in that. And elite runners that were really going for the win had basically trained for years and arranged their life and endured all kinds of sacrifice and pain to compete at that level. You see, amid all of the hoopla and everything around Rosie, and everybody say, oh, wow, this is great, a newcomer has won, won a race. Well, people who, you know, were experienced, they could look and see something, something that's really weird. I mean, there's a way that, like, elite runners, the way that their um, leg, if you're going to win the Boston Marathon, like, you have a, your body has a certain look. Your legs are going to have a, the muscles in your legs are going to have a certain look. She didn't have that. She barely even was, had any sweat. We talked about in 1 Timothy 4, 7, where Paul says there, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. And remember, we talked about that word train. It's the word that we get the word gymnasium from. The Greek word sounds a lot like gymnasium. But it's a word that has sweat in it. It has the smell of sweat in it. Train yourself for godliness. In other words, the growth in the Christian life is going to take discipline and some spiritual sweat. So Paul uses these athletic metaphors. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 9 and verses 24 and following, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Now, notice the reward here for the athlete. It's the crown. It's being, it's being crowned. For competing according to the rules, that's a, but but see that's a crown that's a crown in the realm of athletics. Whether it's a gold medal or a, you know a, a leaf of wreaths around your head, that's not going to last ultimately. The, the, the reward that we're going for is eternal. It's not going to fade. The third metaphor that we see here in verse six is the farmer. Look at that, verse six. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. You know, talk about both uh, something that requires both sweat and skill. That's farming. Hardworking farmer, but there's a reward in that. What's the reward? The crop, the harvest. 
And Galatians 6, 9 promises to us a harvest. He says, it says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So what kind of harvest? First of all, there's a harvest of holiness in our lives. The great J.C. Ryle wrote this in his classic book, Holiness. Ryle said, I will never shrink from declaring uh, my belief that there are no spiritual gains without pains. I should as soon expect a farmer to prosper in his business who contented himself with sowing his fields and never looking at them till harvest as expect a believer to attain much holiness who was not diligent about his Bible reading, his prayers, and the use of his Sundays. So there's a harvest of holiness. Second, there's a harvest of people. John Stott says this, souls are won to Christ, not by the slick automatic application of a formula, but by tears and sweat and pain, especially in prayer and in sacrificial personal friendship. Who's your one? Who is a person in your life that needs the Lord? They're going to be won to Christ, not by some slick gimmick, but by your faithful prayers for them over the long haul and your faithful sowing of love in their lives, spending time with them, being there for them, loving them, sharing the gospel faithfully with them over the long haul. That's how people are won to Christ. That's the harvest of people. And then in verse 7, look at what he says. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Consider or think over what I say. Think about it. Think about the word. You've heard me say it before. If you rake, all you get is leaves. When you dig, you get diamonds. Think over Consider carefully the word. Meditate on God's word. Apply God's word. Don't let God's word be like water running through your head like a pipe in one ear and out the other. No, be like a tea bag that is steeping in the word of God. Think over scripture. And as we do that, we're not alone, because what does he say in verse 7? Consider what I say for what? The Lord will give you understanding in everything. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. The Holy Spirit opens up the word. You know, I've talked with so many people, and uh, people who don't yet know Christ, and I mean, some of these are you know, very intelligent people. And they can comprehend all kinds of things. But when you share the gospel with them, it's like just this blank. Like, like it's, just, it's just like like some kind of a wall there. You know, and they say, well, I try to read the Bible. I don't understand it. And they just don't, they don't, they, they, they're, they're just, something's not translating. Okay, there's a reason for that. It's the absence of the spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, but the person without the spirit 
does not receive what comes from God's spirit because it is foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. But listen, when we turn to Christ and trust in him, God gives us the Holy Spirit. And when you read the Bible, it's going to be like a whole new world opening up to you. Life is new. Scripture comes alive. The gospel is beautiful. It's glorious. Right? That's the spirit. That's the spirit working in your life. You get the spirit when you turn to Jesus. And he invites you to come to him now. He invites you to open that door to him right now. Let's pray together. This is a holy, holy time. These are holy moments as we do business with God. Hey, listen, where are you in a relationship with Christ? You say, well, man, I don't have an ongoing relationship with Christ. He invites you to that. His love for you is so sure and so certain. It's seen on a cross. He died on a cross for sinners like you and me. That we can be forgiven. That we can have eternal life. That, 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 that life can begin afresh and anew. And that the spirit would come into our lives and begin to transform us from the inside out and lead us and guide us and open our minds to a whole world of spiritual reality and truth and beauty. Turn to Jesus now and trust him. Christian, you're called to be a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, and all of that, all that that means, right? This is not playing games. This is real. Are you willing to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus? Are you willing to discipline yourself as you grow in Christ like the athlete or the farmer? Are you sowing to the spirit that you reap a harvest of holiness and a harvest of influence in the lives of other people? Father, how we pray for that. We pray for your grace to both work in us and through us. Help us to be strong in that grace that is in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.